In an effort to dispel all doubt concerning the resurrection of Jesus and to refute every false theory against it, John included within his gospel account several post-resurrection appearances of our Lord. In other words, these are appearances that the Lord made to people initially right after his resurrection, all the way up to his ascension or the time that he left the earth to return to heaven. And last Sunday, we looked at how he first appeared to Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb on Easter morning. In the next section, we're going to look at how he appeared to the disciples or his disciples. Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 31 this morning. Once more, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. By way of context, Jesus had just appeared to Mary Magdalene. He had spoken with her. He even commissioned her to to go and deliver a special message for him to his brothers, to the disciples. And then after commissioning her, Jesus and Mary parted ways. I'm not sure where Jesus went, possibly Uh, He went on the road to Emmaus or something of that nature, which Scripture seems to indicate. Mary, we know, she uh, did exactly what she was was told to do, and she went to the disciples and told them that she had seen the Lord, and she delivered the Lord's message to them. And sadly, uh, the Gospel of Mark, not here in John, but the Gospel of Mark tells us that the disciples did not believe her. Uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 11. So that's where we left off. Let's, let's pick it up at verse 19a. Chapter 20, verse 19a. The text says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So We stop right there. The first thing John does here is he tells us when everything that we're about to look at occurred was on the evening of the same day, which was the first day of the week, which was Easter Sunday, the very first Easter. So this is the the same Sunday in which Jesus appeared to Mary in the morning. He now is going to appear to the disciples that evening. That's what we have here. And I think that it had to be sometime before sundown. Uh, because if you recall, the Jewish day ran sundown to sundown, not midnight to midnight. So uh, the next day, and this is, this is uh, the springtime, so the next day would have began at roughly 6.30 whenever the sun went down. So this is probably 4, 5, 5.30, maybe as late as 6 p.m. on the same day, Easter Sunday. And John tells us that the disciples were in this place and they had locked the doors. Why did they lock the doors? He tells us, for fear of the Jews. Well, who were the Jews? Are we talking about the Jews in general? No, we're, we're speaking here of the religious leaders. Remember, when the title Jews, capitalized Jews, appears in John's gospel, he's generally referring to the religious leaders. It was the, the Jews or religious leaders who had condemned Jesus to death. So the disciples figured they were next on the list, Right? I mean, this is the very reason why Peter denied Jesus three times 
uh, just a couple of days before that. He was in fear for his life. And so they were worried that the Sanhedrin had sent the temple police out to find them and arrest them. And maybe they would suffer the same fate. So they had the place secured. They had it locked up. Makes sense. You might say they were hiding. And where were they at this moment? Well, John doesn't tell us, but I think it was the upper room. Because the upper room is the place where they met with Jesus many times and, and long after Jesus. It was uh, potentially owned by John Mark, the gospel writer of Mark. His mother may have owned it and loaned it to the Lord and to the ministry. And so I think that's where this is taking place. They were in the upper room and it was locked up and secured. And it was on the same Sunday. It was just later in the day. Now look at 19b. It says, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Well, typically when the doors are locked at a place or a room or a building, you have to knock on the door, right? <laughs> or you have to have a key, uh, right? Or you have to have a hairpin and, and uh, pick the lock. I mean, somehow you've got to get the door open so you can get in, right? And John doesn't mention any of these sorts of things happening here. It's the room is locked, and then Jesus is in the room. Okay, so it doesn't say that he picked the lock. It doesn't say that he used a key. It doesn't say that he knocked on the door. He just appeared in the room with the disciples. How is this possible? Well, it's fairly simple. And his glorified resurrection body, he simply passed through the walls. He just passed right through the walls. I'm not sure if he ever put his hand on the doorknob. He just passed right through them. I like what A.W. Pink wrote here in commentary. He said, Locked doors could not keep out the conqueror of death. There was no need for him to knock for admission, nor for an angel to open the door for him. And he says this, which is a great insight. In a similar way, our resurrection body, you know, those who are in Christ receive a resurrection body that's glorified like Jesus's. He says, in a similar way, our resurrection body will not be subject to the limitations of the mortal body, sown in weakness, but it will be raised in power. He's citing 1 Corinthians 15.43. So the idea here is that Jesus passes right. He's got a new glorified body. He's risen, right? He passes right through the walls enters into their presence without having to use the normal functions and way in. And Pink says that we will have similar ability. And I think the scripture clearly teaches that. Very interesting. Um, I've walked into walls, but never through a wall. It wasn't that long ago that I tried to walk through the glass slider at the house. Rachel likes to keep it just perfectly clean. We need to put one of those dots right there at about the forehead level that way. But... I've never been able to do anything like this, and uh, it'll be interesting to be able to do it. I don't think in the kingdom of Jesus Christ you'll be doing it to show off, uh, but it is some sort of ability that we might have. For what purpose? To get from one point to another without any hindrance. So it's very interesting. I want you to notice Jesus' greeting to the disciples. He says, peace be with you. Now this was the standard greeting of one Jew to another, which is still in use today. 
In Hebrew, it is pronounced shalom alikum. Can you say it? Yeah, very good. Shalom alikum. You did. This is your first try at it. You should have heard me the other day. I was like a buffoon at the table there trying to do it. Shalom alikum. And it really means peace be upon you. And now, since Jesus repeats this greeting, Shalom Aleichem, since he repeats it again in verse 21, what does that indicate? That it has a heightened meaning. It's not just a simple expression of peace be upon you. It's magnified, it's amplified, because it's repeated. The repetition takes it beyond a standard greeting. Prior to the cross... Jesus had promised the disciples peace during the Last Supper. This was, you know, just just a couple of days earlier during the Last Supper. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Chapter 14, verse 27. So during the Last Supper, he says that I, he basically promises to give them peace. Now, That promise that he made just a few days earlier, it was contingent upon him completing the work of redemption. He could give it to them in the form of a promise, but he couldn't deliver on it. Not yet, because he hadn't completed the work of redemption, which he completed on Friday and Saturday and Sunday, right, as he rose from the grave. He literally had to to die on the cross... He had to to pay for our sins with his own precious blood. He had to, in, in doing that, he had to satisfy the demands of God's holy justice before peace could be established and given by him to anyone. So it was necessary, he makes the promise, but it's necessary that he follow through and purchase the peace through his own blood and sacrifice. And what do we have here on Sunday evening? The work of redemption was complete. What did Jesus say on the cross? His very last words. It is finished. And now that, that, that the work of redemption was complete on Sunday evening, now that peace had been purchased by Jesus through his own precious blood, we see him on this evening making good on his promise right here in these verses. I promised to give you and leave you with peace. I earned it through the shedding of my blood. And now I'm delivering on that promise. This is a promise that Jesus made and accomplished just in a few days. It's marvelous. And yet there's a question that comes to mind. What kind of peace is this? Right? Is it peace in the world? No. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Is it peace with other people? No, not initially. Is it An inner peace with oneself? No, not necessarily. Well, what kind of peace is it? It is the most essential peace. It is the foundational peace. It is the basis for any and all peace. 
It is peace with the Father. It is peace with God. There is no way, no way to experience true peace, real peace, the deepest peace. There's no way to experience true and lasting peace while being at enmity with God because of sin. There's just no way. And you can see evidence of this in people's lives, especially throughout the world, as the world is constantly pursuing peace and yet cannot obtain it. And sadly, it has to, if it seeks to have peace and it does obtain it, it's through force. It's through death. It's through slaughter. And then at some point it loses it again, and then it has to rise up again in a militaristic way and gain it again. I mean, what are, what are our law enforcement, what is our law enforcement um, slogan in Modesto? I, I think it has to do with keeping the peace. It's usually it across, <laughs> across the nation. That's what law enforcement is in place to do, is to keep the peace. And yet, are they constantly battling to do that? The moment that it's gained, it's gone? Well, it's because fundamentally true peace cannot be experienced while you have a whole bunch of sinners down here on this side at war with God, at enmity with God. And yet Jesus came to deal with our sin so that we could have peace at the vertical level with God. I mean, he came basically essentially to live a perfect life and earn our righteousness, to die on a cross for our sin, to be buried, to settle our account, to rise from the grave. Why? So that we could have salvation, eternal life? Absolutely. But what is eternal life? Boil it down. It's peace with God. It's relationship with God. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 It says, peace was made through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. How do we experience true peace? It's through the redeeming work of Jesus, which he establishes through that work. He establishes peace with the one who sent him, the Father. Peace with the Father is the starting point. And I'm I'm astonished that people truly believe that that through religion and through good deeds and and through all sorts of mechanism and being quote-unquote a good person that they somehow have peace with God. And yet if they do not have Jesus Christ, the biblical Christ, there is no peace with God. They are at enmity. They are at war with him, even though they would never say, Well, I'm at war with God, as if they take their rifles and shoot him into the sky. No one would ever do that. I guess some people would. There's enough people out there that are a little bit more crazy than others. But for the most part, I was an unbeliever for most of my life, up into my early 30s. But I never considered myself to be at war with God. But every disobedient, faithless action of mine was an affront and an attack on his holiness. I just didn't know it. No, there is a war 
against God, and it's everyone who's outside of Christ. And the only way to have peace, true peace, is through receiving by grace through faith that blood-bought redemption. That's it. It is where we must begin. The disciples and all believers have peace with God because of Jesus' finished work and because of his fulfilled promise. Peace for us that are in Christ is not just an option. It's a reality. And yet, because we have a sinful nature that remains, we have to pursue peace on most days, don't we? But at least we can. The Scriptures clearly teach because we have this fulfilled promise, believers have this fulfilled promise of peace, that all believers are to live in harmony with one another, with other believers And they are to live at peace with everyone, even those who are outside of the sheepfold. Romans Romans teaches this. Let's move to verse 20. In verse 20, John tells us when he or Jesus had said this, when he had said, what, peace be upon you or peace be with you. After he had said that, it says that he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad that they had seen the Lord. So when Jesus first appeared and, and spoke peace to the disciples, they, they didn't know it was him. They're probably like, who's this guy and how did he get in here? Remember, they they did not understand resurrection or believe that the Lord had to die, be buried, and rise yet. They knew that he had done those things. They didn't know he risen yet at this point, but they knew that he died. But they didn't know exactly why he had died or why he had to rise or any of that. They didn't understand his teachings. And so they've got to be looking at this guy saying, who is this guy? And I don't know if he looked like that where he was glowing because that would have been even more weird. But I think he might have been because they literally thought he was a ghost. They're looking at him and go, is this Casper? They didn't know. They didn't know that it was Jesus that was standing there who, who offered them peace. And this guy begins to say, hey, you know, look, look at my, look at my wounds. So like Mary Magdalene, they failed to recognize Jesus, right? In the previous section, she was talking to Jesus and didn't know it was him. She thought she was talking to the gardener. (laughs) Use Echo or Steel. They're both really good brands. I mean, she just didn't know what he was doing. According to Luke's account, they were, when the disciples saw him and he begins to show them his wounds and he offers them peace, it says that they were startled and frightened. Why? Because they thought they were seeing a ghost. Chapter 24, verse 37. But Jesus is so merciful and so gracious and so kind. You know, we get offended when people don't recognize us, when we know them, they can't remember us. Jesus isn't offended. Jesus knew they were struggling to figure out who he is. And so he literally tells them to analyze his nail-pierced hands and the spear hole in his side. He even invited them to to touch him, to see that he is 
a real flesh and blood person and not a ghost. We see this in Luke chapter 24, verse 39. He literally tells him like, hey, would a, would a, would a spiritual being like that, would a ghost have a body like this? Here, touch the wounds, touch my hands, touch my side. If I'm a ghost, your hand's going to go right through me. And, and even after inviting them to touch and see that he's real, he's a real person, they still disbelieved that it was him. And, and again, pure mercy. If I'm Jesus, I'm mad now. Aren't you glad I'm not Jesus? Half of you would have lost your salvation already. Well, what about you? Well, I would have lost mine too, but still... Jesus then asked if they had anything to eat. Chapter 24, verse 41 of Luke. You got anything to eat? I'll prove to you that I'm not a ghost. Because, you know, ghosts don't eat. I mean, I guess they did in Ghostbusters. But it fell right through them. You remember Slimer? Just went right in and went right down. And Jesus says, do you have anything to eat? And they're like, yes, we do. And so they hand him a piece of broiled fish. And what does he do? Can a ghost do this? And he proceeds to eat it in front of them. Luke chapter 24, verses 42 to 43. Finally, they believed and were glad to see him. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I think it's totally and absolutely unfair to paint Thomas as the doubter when the ten disciples that he's meeting with here were way worse than Thomas. If not just as bad, I think worse. Jesus had to provide them with three convincing proofs before they would believe. He showed them his wounds, he let them touch him, and he ate a piece of fish in front of them. But Thomas only required one convincing proof to believe. All he had to do was see Jesus' wounds. Verses 28 and 29 of our text. And it's interesting, when we get down there, Jesus tells Thomas, go ahead and touch him. But Thomas, all he has to do is look at the wounds and he believes. He doesn't even have to touch them. Because Jesus says, you have seen and you believe. So who needed more proof to believe? Thomas, who's called the doubter, or the ten disciples who needed three? Who is the greater doubters? The disciples. And yet Thomas is the one who has been eternally painted as the nimbus. And what was going on with John, who, right, the one whom Jesus loved? He was here. He was in the mix. After seeing the grave clothes and folded head covering on the shelf in the empty tomb that morning, right? It says, he believed Jesus had risen, right? Verse 8 of this chapter. But a few hours later, when the risen Lord actually appears to him, John, with the other nine, thinks that he's a ghost. <laughs> this is a perfect time for, come on, man. Right? What, what, what are you guys doing? But Thomas is the doubter. Yeah, these guys were just as bad, if not worse. Verses 21 to 23, let's go there. 
Jesus said to them again, see, now that they recognize him and they realize after all the proof that he provided, hey, it's you, we're glad you're here. He says to them again, peace be with you. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, I have to tell you, this has to be one of the most misinterpreted sections in all the Bible. People go absolutely bananas with it. But now that they do recognize him, Jesus again repeats his offer of peace. And then he, he basically commissions them for gospel ministry, right? As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So he gives them peace once again, and then he commissions them. In other words, Jesus was about to send the disciples into the world to proclaim, to preach the good news, the gospel, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, right? This is what he's saying to them here. This is what he's doing. But this was not the great commission that many of us are familiar with. That was given by Jesus about 40 days later at his ascension. You know, Matthew 28, Mark 16, 15. This is not that particular moment or what we would consider the great commission. This was more of a, a pre-commission ceremony that pointed to the great commission. And after ceremonially commissioning them, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, right? We just read that in verse 22. This impartation of the Holy Spirit should be viewed as symbolic and not literal. In other words, Jesus did not literally breathe the Holy Spirit into them or onto them at this moment. This was a ceremony a ritual that pointed forward. And that's where the mistake is made with many, that they think that this is when they received the Spirit. But we know the Scripture says they received the Spirit on Pentecost. So this should be viewed as symbolic and not literal. Why? Because Jesus told the disciples they would receive the Holy Spirit after His ascension, not before it. If He's in the room with them, He hasn't ascended and returned to heaven, has he? No. So this is not the impartation of the Spirit. When Jesus breathed on them, he was, re, he was reenacting, literally reenacting Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where God breathed the breath of life into Adam's nostrils. That's what he's mimicking, is the creation account when God, after God formed man and blew his breath of life into man to make him a living being. That's what he's mimicking here, Genesis 2-7. As well as pointing to a future event. As God breathed the breath of life into the first Adam, Jesus, the second Adam, the last Adam, shall breathe the breath of life, the Holy Spirit, into the disciples on Pentecost. That's what's meant here. And the Holy Spirit is pictured as God's breath 
In Ezekiel 37, verses 9 through 14, as the wind in the early section of John 3. In fact, the, the Greek word for wind, uh, wind, breath, and spirit is pneuma. The same word is used to describe wind, breath, and spirit. It gives you the idea that the spirit moves like the wind. You don't know where he's coming from. You can't predict him. That's what's pictured here. But Jesus was not only reenacting Genesis 2-7 and pointing to Pentecost, he was also mimicking the Old Testament prophets who often used illustrations to communicate truth. Sometimes when the Old Testament prophets were preaching a message, they would use an item to help illustrate that truth, to drive those points home or those truths home. Maybe to make them more understandable to God's people or to whomever they were preaching to. For example, when Jeremiah rebuked the kings of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for their idolatry, he raised a clay potter's flask above his head and declared, God is going to break this people and the city. And then he took the flask and he thrust it into the ground, shattering it into a thousand pieces. He just picks an item up and says, God is going to just shatter you and shatter the city like this. Bam! And he blows it into a hundreds and hundreds of pieces. That's the idea of an Old Testament prophet using an object or, or creating an object lesson or an object example. They did this all the time. And Jesus is doing this. When Jesus breathes on the disciples, he's doing what the Old Testament prophets did to illustrate a truth. The breath of Jesus illustrated how the Holy Spirit would come upon the disciples on Pentecost. How? Like wind. Acts 2.2. What does it say? A strong wind came into the room and appeared, the Holy Spirit appeared like tongues Flaming tongues, remember how it's illustrated. Wind is pneuma there, spirit is pneuma. When Jesus blows on them, it's as if he's saying, this is how the spirit will come upon you on Pentecost. That's what he's doing. There is no actual impartation of the spirit here. Jesus has to leave for that to take place. He has to return to his glorious throne. And then he sends the Spirit. Remember what he said a little previously or earlier in the Gospel of John. He said, it's to your advantage that I go. Because if I do not go, you do not receive the Holy Spirit. After symbolically breathing on them and illustrating how the Holy Spirit would come upon them on Pentecost, Jesus symbolically gave them, the, uh, gave them authority in verse 23. Now, some folks interpret this verse to mean that Jesus was giving the disciples or apostles is what they would become later or known as. Some say that, okay, what he was doing here is he was giving the apostles the authority to forgive sin or not forgive sin. This is not the correct interpretation of this verse because Scripture clearly teaches that only God can forgive sin and that He does that through the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
In no way was Jesus breathing on them and giving them the Spirit and saying, now go out and forgive sins, and if you don't want to forgive somebody's sins, then don't do it. He was not empowering them or commissioning them to be forgivers or not forgivers. That is God's act in God alone. Only God can forgive sin, and He does it through Jesus. So you, you got to understand this correctly. Don't think, don't misread it like others do. There's some denominations and other groups out there that claim to be Christian that really aren't, that think that, you know, well, Jesus said the apostles could forgive or not forgive, and, and now since there's, you know, we're the new apostles today, and so we have the power, ability to forgive sin or not to forgive sin, that's blasphemous. Jesus never gave the apostles the ability to forgive or not to forgive, and the apostles, the apostolic age is over. There are no apostles. There never has been since after 100 A.D. They're gone. R.C. Sproul has a, an answer that's pretty spot on here. He wrote, Under the power of the Holy Spirit, the disciples would have the authority to declare God's condemnation of sin and His offer of forgiveness. You see, there's a huge difference between forgiving and not forgiving and preaching the message of forgiveness or the message of condemnation. Huge difference. Let me just put this in simpler terms. Jesus was giving the disciples authority to preach the gospel and authority to declare that those who repent and believe in Jesus are forgiven and those who refuse to repent and believe in Jesus are not. That's what he gave them the authority to do. Declare the message, and when people repent and believe, declare that they're forgiven. And when they refuse to do that, declare that they're still under condemnation and that they must repent. Is this not what I do every weekend? You see, the authority that was granted to them has been granted to the minister of the gospel. And believe it or not, to every believer the application is much broader than what we're reading here. Jesus not only gave these disciples this authority, He has given it to the entire church. Every disciple, every follower of Jesus, every true believer has authority to preach the gospel and authority to declare that a sinner is forgiven or unforgiven based on how that sinner responds to the gospel. If they repent and believe the gospel, we can tell them God has forgiven you according to Scripture. If they reject the gospel, which they do so often, we can tell them that they are still under condemnation and will perish according to Scripture if they maintain that mode. And when we humbly and lovingly exercise this God-given authority, our hearers will react in a number of ways. The most common reaction is, you're judging me. Is it not? And you know what we can tell them? In love, we can tell them that it is the word of God that has judged them. And that we are simply relaying its message to them. That's how you respond to that. Now let's move to verses 24 and 25. Better than just telling them that, take them to the Scriptures that show it and say it. 
Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He was laying down the gauntlet. Jesus tells us that, or John tells us that, that Thomas was not there that evening, the evening where Jesus first appears to the disciples. He wasn't there. It was only 10, not 11. We know Judas was gone. That's why it was 11. They hadn't replaced him yet. But Thomas was not there this evening. Why was he not there? Well, I don't know. John doesn't tell us why, so we really don't know for sure. Anything that we would say beyond that is just conjecture or speculation. But, you know, I like to speculate a little bit. Don't take this as absolute truth. But it could be because of what I'm going to say. Scripture doesn't say much about Thomas. But it does seem to reveal certain things about him as he interacted with his peers and Jesus. I mean, if you just look at where he appears in the New Testament, in the Gospels, you can get an idea of what kind of person he was. There's enough there to give you that sense. I don't have any doubts that he was pessimistic, according to John chapter 11, verse 16. He was a pessimist. In fact, MacArthur called him an eternal pessimist. Well, that's kind of raw. We know that he was melancholy, chapter 14, verse 5. He was kind of introverted and negative and melancholy. Um, I think MacArthur likened him to Eeyore. That's how he was. And we know for a fact that he was doubting, right? Uh, You said you saw him. Unless I see the wounds and touch them, I will never believe it. So he was a doubter, verse 25 of our text. So he was what? Pessimistic, melancholy, and he was a big-time doubter. Based on this information and the fact that his master had been brutally killed on Friday, he might have been away that evening because he was depressed. Might have been away that evening because he was not desiring to be social. Lord knows I've felt like that. We're not told, but I think that's what's going on with this poor guy. He was so heartbroken over the death, the slaughter of his master of Jesus. And he was naturally pessimistic and melancholy and a doubter. You add it all up. That's a recipe for depression, and I'm not going tonight. I'm going to stay home and have a hungry man. may have been feeling sorry for himself. I don't know. But it's very interesting that he wasn't there because John tells us that, and that's supposed to cause us to think. I feel sorry for the man, but I don't blame him. John also mentions that Thomas had a nickname, twin, which is Didymus in Greek. What does that tell us? That he had a twin brother. And of course... As soon as I realized he had a twin brother, I thought, I wonder if they ever tried to switch places during the ministry of Jesus. Like when things got tough. Hey, Fred, come over here and take my place for a couple days. I mean, we have some twin girls here. I wonder if they ever swapped out when they were testing or did any of that stuff. Ever tried to fool mom, but there's no fooling mom. She can see through you and see your DNA and know there's a difference. 
That's Tiffany DNA. That's Tina DNA. Get back in here. But it makes you wonder if they ever, I don't think they did, but did they ever try? Jesus is omniscient. I mean, it's like, I, I know you're Fred. Go get your brother Thomas. Oh, really? My bad. It's fun to play with. After Jesus appeared on Easter evening, okay, because Thomas wasn't there, Thomas, at some point, maybe later that evening or the next day or a day after, he reconnects with the disciples, and they testified to seeing Jesus, and yet he disbelieved. And he even gave them an ultimatum, right? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So he, he throws down the gauntlet. He gives them an ultimatum. You're saying he rose, but I won't believe it until I see it for myself. And at that moment, the term Doubting Thomas came into the world. But like I said earlier, the other disciples were just as doubtful, if not worse. So we shouldn't be overly critical of Thomas, especially since he was a melancholy, sensitive type. You know, you got to be careful with them. Let's move to verses 26 to 27. It says, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, <laughs> Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. John tells us that eight days later, the disciples, including Thomas this time, they were in the same place, up in the upper room. The doors were locked, but once again, the doors, locked doors proved to be no deterrent for the risen Lord. He just passes right through the walls, stands in their midst. He offers them the same peace again. That's three times in the same week. It's the peace that he purchased at Calvary. And then he turns to Thomas to meet Thomas's ultimatum, and he invites him to physically examine his wounds. Touch the holes. Here's the holes. Touch them. Here's the hole in my side. Touch it. And he exhorts him, do not continue to disbelieve, but believe. How does Thomas respond to Jesus's gracious invitation? Look at verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas makes perhaps the greatest confession of any of the disciples or apostles. It's right up there with Peter's confession in Matthew 16, 16, where he told Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. Thomas's declaration is right up there with Peter's. Now let's just analyze his declaration. Let's analyze his confession just a bit. He confesses Jesus as Lord and God. As Lord and God. The word translated as Lord is the same word used in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament for God's highest name. What is his highest name in the Old Testament? Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Thomas 
confessed that Jesus is Yahweh, his God, standing before him. To those who, who deny the deity of Jesus Christ, if Jesus were not God, wouldn't he have corrected Thomas here? Wouldn't he have said, uh, hold on a second, Thomas, you've, you've gone too far. I'm just the, the, the son of God. I'm a son of God. I'm, I, I'm, I'm the firstborn of creation. I, I was created by God a long time ago. Don't, don't call me God. Wouldn't Jesus have said something like that? After Thomas called him Lord and God, put them together, Yahweh, God's highest name. Yes, Jesus would have corrected him. Jesus would have corrected him. R.C. Sproul put it like this, when Thomas confessed the deity of Christ, there was no hint of rebuke from the lips of Jesus. Jesus did not say, stop that, I'm just a creature which is what the angels said when they appeared to various saints and they fell before them and started worshiping them because they thought they were God. And the angels would say, I'm created, don't do that. What you're doing is reserved for Yahweh. You see nothing like that here. You see no correction from the Lord Jesus. Why? Because Jesus accepted Thomas's confession. Why? Because he is Lord and God. That's why. He is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God in three. How does that work? I don't know. But it's a reality and a truth. And we must accept it by faith. Let's move to verse 29. Look at what Jesus does here. This is where the correction would be. Friends, beloved, this is where Jesus would say, hey, 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 pal, I'm a creature, not the creator. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You know, what Jesus actually did here was he pronounced a benediction and a beatitude. I don't like the way the ESV and the NASB and, and some other English translations render the first part of the verse in the form of a question. I don't think it's rendered properly. I don't believe Jesus was, was questioning Thomas or saying something like, you only believe because you have seen me. Or is it true that you believe because you've seen me? Do you see the question mark? It's there. And I don't think it's rendered properly by the ESV or the NASB. Yeah, I'm taking a shot at my own translation. I believe what Jesus did here is I believe that he praised Thomas for his faith. But it's a little challenging to see it here when it's rendered as a question followed by a beatitude that commends those who believe without seeing. The sentence structure in English is difficult. It makes it look like a correction. The NIV and the King James render it as a statement which fits much better. The NIV says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Way different than because you've seen me, now you believe? 
You see the difference? And I want you to keep something in mind here. Thomas was a true believer. He believed in the Lord Jesus as Messiah, as Savior. Did he not understand some things about the work of Jesus? Yes, but he believed that he was the long-awaited Messiah. He believed. He never stopped believing that Jesus is Lord and Savior. He never stopped believing that. Never. He simply had a difficult time comprehending and accepting Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus' resurrection, because those things didn't fit with his Judaistic theology. And he never doubted for a moment the deity of Jesus, as so many do today. He believed all of that. He's had a hard time putting the puzzle pieces of the death and resurrection together. Boy, did he get it on Pentecost when the Spirit revealed all truth to him. Never doubted anything like that again. Never questioned anything again like that after that day. Up to that point, it was shifty. It was as if Jesus had said to him here, You've seen me and you believe that I rose from the grave. Good! I think that's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying you've seen me and you believe in me as Lord and Savior. You already do that. Now that you've seen me, you believe that I rose just as, just as others told you that I did. That's what he's saying. Big difference. He's commending him. He's commending him. You believe. Good. You need to believe that I rose. It's necessary. There's no salvation without believing that. There is no ministry without believing that. There's nothing. Our faith is foolishness if he hasn't risen. Looking forward to the time when Jesus will not be around to provide physical evidence of his resurrection as he did here in the text, he declares a beatitude which features a blessing for those who will believe in him without seeing him. He was referring to those who would come to faith after His ascension, after He's gone. They will be, what does He say? Blessed or blessed. What does it mean to be blessed here? Well, being blessed is sometimes associated with experiencing great happiness, and that element is present in a way here, but that's not the primary sense of the meaning. It means to be looked on favorably by God. So according to this beatitude, God looks on those who believe in Jesus without seeing Him with special favor. Wow. Does this special favor produce anything in the believer who's believed without seeing? Yes. According to Peter, it produces inexpressible joy. 1 Peter 1.8. Let's move to the final section, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John takes a moment to address those who will read or hear this gospel First, he states that Jesus performed many other signs or miracles in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. They're not written in his gospel. 
Why didn't John write them all down? Well, if you go over to chapter 21, verse 25, the very last verse of this gospel, it says, because there was too many. If they were all written down, there wouldn't be enough books in the whole world to contain them. He was using hyperbole, but Jesus did a lot. John records eight of them, eight signs and wonders, eight miracles. That's it. But there were so many, you just couldn't keep up with them. Second, he states why he wrote down some of Jesus' miracles in this gospel so that his readers and hearers may believe that Jesus is who he said he is, the Christ, the Son of God. What does it mean for him to be the Son of God? God, he's God, he's God, he's God. That's what it means. He's divine. Third, he utilizes the authority Jesus had given him five decades earlier on the first Easter Sunday to do what? To state that those who believe in Jesus will have life in his name. Life in his name is eternal life, salvation. If any reader or, or hearer of this gospel accepts John's testimony and repents of their unbelief and sin and believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as the Son of God, as God, they will have life in His name and they are blessed. Why are they blessed? Because they have believed without seeing. God's favor is special upon them. What a glorious thing we see here. Oh. What a fitting end to this section. I feel like this ought to be at the end of chapter 21. And here I am challenging the way it's structured. Whoops. I just committed a mortal sin. I didn't mean it like that. What a fitting end. That, that John included within his gospel account. He wrote everything for an express purpose. But more than that, he includes eight signs and wonders that Jesus did. Walking on water, feeding a multitude, raising a dead man back to life, Lazarus, turned water into wine. He did all of these things. He himself rose from the grave. Why? As evidences, as proofs. And what else did he do that's supernatural? He appeared to people after he had risen, before he ascended. These are all supernatural signs and wonders. These are all miracles for the express purpose of what? Convincing that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, that he is the Son of God, that he is God. The whole purpose of this book is that. Do you believe? Closing. We talked about the unbelief of the ten disciples and Thomas and how Jesus appeared to them and, and provided them with, with physical evidence that convinced them of his resurrection, and, and it literally vanquished their unbelief regarding his resurrection. Just gone. 21st century Christians like us do not have the privilege of seeing Jesus and, and even touching his wounds so that our unbelief is vanquished like that of the disciples. But are we any less privileged? We have 
the full revelation of God, the Bible, which upon hearing brings faith, Romans 10, 17, which upon hearing or reading builds faith, 1 Peter 2, 2. We have the full revelation of God. That, my friends, is a privilege and an advantage. We have the Holy Spirit who manifests the spiritual presence of Jesus to us and in us and who comforts, teaches, and leads us as we follow our risen Lord. That's an advantage. That's a privilege. They didn't obtain it until roughly 50 days later on Pentecost. And we have it now. And we have the special favor of God because we have believed without seeing. What an act of grace of God to illuminate us and bring us into understanding. It's all Him that's behind it. But at the same time, there's a special blessing, favor that He puts on those who believe without seeing. And this special blessing, this special favor produces unspeakable joy in our lives. Brothers and sisters, we are not less privileged. We are more privileged. We are not disadvantaged. We are advantaged. And yet, I say this because there's such a strong pull for this today. We need to be mindful of Jesus' warning to those who demand a sign or miracle to believe. They belong to a wicked and adulterous generation. Matthew 16, 4. Is this not what we see today in certain theological or denominational circles where people are always yearning for and calling for signs and wonders and these sorts of things? Give us proofs. Give us proofs. Jesus is, from his own lips, he said, those who demand such things to believe belong to a, even he even calls it a perverse generation. Brothers and sisters, we are to walk by faith, not by sight. And if our faith is weak, as it often is, God can make it stronger through His Word. God can, can strengthen our faith through the Holy Spirit. He can. May we call upon Him. And may we persevere, press on toward the goal. May we win the race. May we Receive the prize. What is the prize? Jesus is the prize. And when we, by grace and by His power, when we enter into the presence, the glorious presence of Jesus Christ, one day or He enters into our presence because He could return. Either way, when we enter into His presence, the struggle of walking by faith will be over. And we will begin to live by sight with perfect eyes, with 
perfect understanding, with perfect love, and with perfect devotion to our Lord.